Greetings, listeners, if any, and welcome to DM Dad, the podcast about running D&D and other RPGs for kids. A great way to spend time with your family now that your friends are too old and have all moved away. Hey Robert, this is Cody M again, and I was just calling in on your last episode. Um, I know you had some questions about hex crawling or sandbox gaming. Um, I think going back and listening to Hex Talk again would probably help answer some questions you might have. Um, also, gaming and BS, I think it was episode 184, went over hex crawling. Um, and then on Google Plus, I have a collection on my page called Gaming Resources that um, has a bunch of links and posts about um, sandbox style gaming, hex crawling, procedural generation, all of that good stuff. Um, so if you head over there and check that out, you should should find some useful stuff, hopefully. Um, anyway, I look forward to hearing how your endeavors with sandbox gaming pan out. And uh, yeah, I'll catch you later. Thanks for that message, Cody. I, uh, I like this uh, opening with a phone in because... Uh, I hate the sound of my own voice. So when I listen to it back, I start with the sound of somebody else's voice instead. Um, but yeah, seriously though, uh, thanks very much for that message. Um, I actually did, uh, check out Cody's Google plus page and, uh, the stories are true. Loads and loads of resources there. So, um, I highly recommend everybody else do the same. Um, one thing I already downloaded, um, from his, uh, his hex crawling resources uh, is a link to this uh, PDF for generating terrain because I'm terrible at mapping. Like I, I'm not afraid of coming up with encounters on the fly. Like I don't need, even even without a random table to roll on. I think I could probably make up something if I felt like it was time for an encounter or something like that. And it doesn't always have to be a combat encounter either. It could be like some people. It could be a weird shrine or abandoned something or other. I, I could probably wing that. What I cannot do is I cannot draw maps. And, you know, I don't need my maps to be 100% super realistic. If you remember like the map of Middle Earth in Lord of the Rings, and you look at the uh, the mountains in Mordor, how they kind of meet at a 90-degree angle and nicely box Mordor in. You know, that looks pretty fake. And, I mean, it probably is at least meant to be constructed. If I, uh, It's been a while since I've read The Silmarillion, but if I remember right, both Morgoth and Sauron had the power to reshape portions of Middle-earth to their liking. So I'm sure it's it's actually meant to be the case that Sauron raised those mountain ranges specifically to defend his realm. But they look fake. You know, mountains don't do that in real life. So there can be little bits like that that, you know, don't make 100% geographic or geological sense. But on the other hand, I don't want it to be too silly. Um, and I'm terrible at, like, deciding where coasts should be. You know, I'm always worried that my coasts are going to be straight and they shouldn't because real life coastlines aren't like that. So there is a terrain generator table in the DMG, the first edition DMG, because I mean, Gygax had a table for just about everything. But 
there it does not include coastlines you have to you have to have that bit of it at least on your own you have to know how big your continent is and a long time ago i did like um following the instructions in uh kent david kelly's uh um old school world generator i just started tracing out some continent shapes on hex paper then when i calculated the distance I'd made the continents pretty small because I was trying to get a 24 mile hex and uh, it just wasn't working out. So I'm going to have to kind of scrap that whole map, um, which means I need to draw new coastlines. And here, you know, there, there are bodies of water and they're probably meant to be lakes maybe, or really wide, like sources of rivers or something like that. But I think you could probably use them for coasts or something. So um, when you're when you're uh, rolling your your terrain for hexes, um, I'll give it a shot anyway. Um, anyways, but yeah, definitely thank you very much for uh, for pointing me towards those resources. I also uh, downloaded your Isles of Mist uh, sample hex crawls, so uh, I'll look into that as soon as I can and let you know what I think, but I'm really excited to check that out. Next up, we have a voicemail from Colin uh, talking about uh, Melee. Hello, Robert. It's Colin, Spike Pit. Yeah, enjoyed your episode on Melee with the kids. Um, to me, that sounds kind of like a skirm what I'd class as a skirmish war game almost um I don't know what your thoughts on that are and it it kind of sounds like it crosses into board game country as well I, I'm thinking with though with that hex grid I've got quite a lot of um hex based board games and stuff so I don't know if I'm off off the mark with that but um yeah I really enjoy these episodes where you do the deep dive into a specific game and uh yeah it's it's easy to um, burn through the time, and before you know where you are, yeah, it's, uh, you get a long episode, and you you don't get all the content in that you wanted to. It's a it's a sort of a problem I have myself. Bit like this minute, really. <laughs> Take it easy, mate. Bye then. All right, thanks for that call, and always great to hear from you. Uh, I think you know you're exactly right. Um, Melee and uh, and Wizard by themselves are basically like skirmish style war games like the the significant difference between them and uh the chainmail system that gary gygax uh, wrote with jeff perrin before before dungeons and dragons is that they are designed for much smaller scale combat like skirmishes like you said um and they definitely do like have overlap into tactical war games and tactical board games and things like that. Um, my understanding, and I haven't, I haven't checked out the rest of the material yet, but my understanding is, is that based on melee and wizard, Steve Jackson developed it into a full fledged role playing game. And this was contemporary to original dungeons and dragons and, and kind of a, a competitor to original dungeons and dragons. And that, um, Eventually, the fantasy trip went out of print, and Steve Jackson focused on GURPS instead. Um, so I'll you know I'll talk about that as I learn more. Some more of the PDFs just recently dropped, so I should have more of the pieces. 
But I'm glad you're enjoying the deep delves into rule systems because that is what I'm doing today with Chainmail. I said that Melee reminded me a lot of Chainmail, uh, which is not that they're... I'm I'm assuming they're ripping each other off. They they came out of the same milieu, the same uh the same era of tactical war games. Um which which you know like it or not are the predecessors of fantasy role-playing games. Um it's it's what people who would eventually play fantasy role games were doing before there was such a thing as fantasy role-playing games. So obviously they're going to have some similarities. So I have uh, the chainmail rule system in PDF, and uh, the reason I have it is, frankly, because original Dungeons & Dragons assumed or required you to have it. I think it's pretty, it's pretty weird, right, when you, when you think about 1974 and D&D comes out in this little box. There's these three pamphlets stapled together. It's 10 US dollars, which is like $70 now. So it's on a par with these really big, expensive, elaborate board games. It's one of the most expensive games that you could that you could buy at the time. And this is not a great period economically for the United States. So where are people getting the money for this? Which actually, it turns out there was a lot of bootleg copies of D&D and things like Tunnels and Trolls and stuff, which pretty much ripped the rules off but did it more cheaply but anyways it's a very expensive game and then you open it up and it says in addition to what you've already spent you need to go buy a bunch of funny dice which are not widely available at the time the the rpg dice are much easier to come by now in the beginning the d20 went to 10 twice so it was the same shape but it didn't go from 1 to 20 it went from 1 to 10 and you had to color in half the numbers so that you would know which ones were 11 to 20 and uh, you know you could order those through TSR, and they themselves were getting them from an educational supplier, and there were dice shortages and things like that. But then you you read that you also have to get a copy of Chainmail and a copy of a board game that isn't even published by TSR called Outdoor Survival. Now it turns out you only need Outdoor Survival if you're going to run a hex crawl. And you don't even really need, you only need the map from Outdoor Survival. And if you're willing to get, if you can get hold of hex paper and you're willing to draw your own map, you don't even need that. But that's the original map for hex crawling. Is they, that's basically what, what Gary Gygax did, is he just got his copy of Outdoor Survival and ran the hex crawl off of that. And it shows how much focus Gary originally put on, on uh, hex crawling versus dungeon crawling because the rules say that before you begin the the referee which is what they called the dungeon master back then has to come up with no fewer than half a dozen levels of a dungeon and then in the underworld and wilderness booklet it says you really ought to have at least 12 plus any number of side levels and have no fewer than two levels under construction at any one time so he's saying get out your graph paper and go to work and and design 12 levels of a dungeon but if your players want to explore the wilderness survival, just go get this other game and just run it off that map. Don't bother. Don't bother mapping wilderness. Later, I think that would change and hex scrolling would become a bigger thing. But obviously, the original intention of Dungeons and Dragons was to go into the dungeon to fight the dragon. 
Never mind how the dragon got there. But anyways, because you're required to have chainmail, I got chainmail, even though I have absolutely no interest in running a mass combat medieval warfare game. Now, the thing about chainmail, first of all, keep in mind that in the original three booklets, Dungeons and Dragons refers you continuously to the chainmail rules for things like combat and for things like the statistics of certain types of creature and certain types of monster. When they talk about the halflings or hobbits, well, they, they were called hobbits in the first printing and then they had to change it after they were, after the Tolkien estate threatened a lawsuit. Halflings are supposed to have deadly accuracy with missile weapons, but they don't tell you how to resolve that de that deadly accuracy. They don't tell you what kind of bonuses they get. They just say refer to chainmail. And in chainmail, uh, any two hobbits count as three hobbits in terms of missile fire, which basically means that um, when you're doing mass missile fire, you roll one six-sided die for each uh, for each person in your unit. So 20 is the standard unit because it's 1 to 20 rules. They count as, but any every two hobbits count as three hobbits. So you're rolling three dice for every two. And that's their deadly accuracy, which gives you, a, a, you know, every time you're adding another die, each time that die rolls like a six, it's a kill. So you're getting more chances to kill. So it's almost like having advantage but that's really that's really difficult to map that to the combat system that would eventually become the norm in Dungeons and Dragons. As I found to my dismay, because I have actually run Dungeons and Dragons using chainmail combat rules. Now, chainmail does not have a numerical armor class system. Instead, they have a descriptive armor class system. So the armor classes are no armor. Leather or padded armor, shield only, leather armor and shield, chain, banded, studded, or splint mail, chain mail and shield, plate armor, plate armor and shield, and then you have mounted after that. But, you know, you're not going to have mounted combat in the dungeon, so I did ignore the mounted combat armor classes. And basically... When you're talking about units of soldiers, different units of soldiers have better chances of inflicting a kill based on their own armor class and the armor class that they're attacking. So there are two hit numbers that you need rolling 1d6 to kill units based on their how much armor they're wearing. But when it comes to the man-to-man -man attacks, as they call it, because Chainmail does include an individual combat subsystem, which doesn't map entirely well to the mass combat system, but it is, it, it's there in case you want to have some kind of, like two knights break away from their unit and go at it just face-to-face -face and run that as a combat. In that case, you would roll 2d6 to hit. And instead of the two hit numbers being based on your armor versus your opponent's armor, it's based on your weapon versus your opponent's armor. So there is a numerical weapon class. Basically going from 1 to 12, and the lower the weapon class is, the smaller and lighter and shorter, especially, the weapon is. So 
the weapon classes given are dagger and hand axe are both weapon class one. There doesn't seem to be a weapon class two. I initially thought this was a typo, but I wonder because th these uh, these numbers are repeated in the judges guild's ready ref sheets, and they're also given pretty much the same. So either the judges guild are repeating the typo, or it wasn't a typo, and there really is no weapon class two. But there's at least one weapon for everyone after that. So mace is three, sword is four, battle axe is five, morning star is six, flail is seven, spear is eight, pole arms and halberds are both nine, two-handed sword is ten, mounted lance is eleven, and pike is twelve. And so the the weapon you're wielding affects the to hit probability based on the amount of armor that your opponent is. So for instance, a dagger only needs a six on 2d6 to hit somebody wearing no armor, but it needs a 10 to hit chain and shield, and it needs a 12 to hit plate armor or plate and shield. By contrast, a pike needs an eight to hit no armor. That's presumably because it's unwieldy. Eight is the, is the lowest it goes, but it's eight across the board until you get to plate armor and plate and shield where you do need nines and tens. A uh, good old-fashioned sword, arm, weapon class four, needs a seven to hit somebody with no armor, but to hit plate and shield only needs an eleven. So it's only one better, really, than a dagger. But that's not the only thing that weapon class is used for. Weapon class also affects the order in which attack rolls are resolved, and this is where it starts to remind me of melee, or rather where melee starts to remind me of chainmail, because melee did come after chainmail. So this doesn't this doesn't count for missile weapons. You notice that all those weapons in the weapon class were, were melee weapons, not missile weapons. Missile fire has its own set of rules. But when two fighters are within melee range, the order of striking, I'm quoting now from the actual rules, the order of striking depends upon several factors. That's a terrible way, by the way, to open up this, this rule set, is that the, you know, you're already saying, this is going to be complex, so strap yourself in you know, and try to keep up. I mean, again, I've said it before, Gary Gygax, great designer, terrible writer. So the the man and I apologize for the sexist language but that is the the way that the uh, the text reads the man striking the first blow receives a return blow only if he fails to kill his opponent. This is a this is a a, a rule in chainmail um that I also use when I'm running uh swords and wizardry and OD&D is that when you're in melee range and you make an attack roll if you don't kill your opponent, your opponent gets a return attack um, immediately, even though it's still your turn. Um, and that's based on this chainmail rule, which I always liked, and also on a um, video I, refer I referred to before by Lindy Beige, where he talks about attacks of opportunity and how they would never happen in real life the way that they are described in 5th edition Dungeons and Dragons that effectively when you when you close in to try to strike a blow with your melee weapon that's when you put yourself in danger of receiving a blow because you have to get close enough to be hit in order to to hit 
Once your attack is over, if you're still alive, you instantly spring back just out of weapon reach. So then you can turn and run away. So it, when I run OD&D, I don't allow attacks of opportunity. If you want to break out of melee, you can do that on your turn anytime you want. There's no adverse consequences. But if you if you go in for an attack roll, and for whatever reason, either because you missed or because you didn't do enough damage to kill, you will get a, a return attack, which could also miss. And it's just one attack and just one simple attack. You're not going to get a spell thrown in your face or you know, the claw-claw bite routine or anything like that. It's just one little swipe that you're going to get. It makes melee more more dangerous. I hope it makes people reconsider charging into melee because if you're running old school D&D, you shouldn't be charging into melee. Just like when you're in like I pointed out in the melee game, the Steve Jackson game, charging into melee is a bad idea. You have a much better chance of winning if you stay at range. Anyways, there is an initiative role and the initiative role works pretty much the same as it does in melee. And similar to how it works in standard Dungeons and Dragons, old school Dungeons and Dragons, each side, so in this case each combatant, rolls a d6. Whoever rolls higher wins the initiative. The difference is that instead of the person winning the initiative by default going first, they decide who moves first, just like in melee. And then, if they're in attack range and they're in a position to attack on their turn... The first blow is struck by the in- the attacker unless the defender has a weapon which is two classes higher or the defender is fighting from above. So position it makes, a, makes a difference here as well. But I am focusing on the weapon classes. So going back to um, the weapon classes and... Th- a lot of people, when they read the original three booklets, which unlike Swords and Wizardry White Box, every weapon does literally a D6. There's no D6 minus one or D6 plus one. So people say, well, why don't you just spend your money on plate armor and arm yourself with a dagger? Because daggers are so much cheaper than swords. And when Matt Colville did his... uh his video, um, the first in his uh, History of D&D One Fighter at a Time series where he did the three little brown booklets, he mentioned that people questioned that. Like, why why have anything other than a dagger if all weapons, inc- from a dagger to a two-handed sword, do a D6 of damage? Why spend your money on another, on a weapon more expensive than a dagger? And there, there are people out there. You can find them on the internet who've proposed these chain, like, or these uh, plate mail armored knights wielding daggers. Matt Coville's hypothesis was that Gary Gygax, being a war gamer and coming from a war game background, and aiming the original version of this game at experienced war gamers, assumed that you would know not to attack a heavily armored creature or knight with a dagger. I mean, a dagger cannot penetrate armor class 2, you know. And he's partially right, but the other thing, the thing that he's missing is that original the, the original three little brown booklets assumed you were going to use chainmail and that you were familiar with chainmail, and the weapon class makes it 
undesirable to wield a dagger as your only weapon. So let's say you are this hypothetical fighter who spent their starting gold on plate and a shield. So your armor class is two and you've got your dagger because, hey, that's all I need, right? It does the same amount of damage as a two-handed sword. And you see a kobold, one to three hit points, because all hit dice were d6s, so uh, a half-hit die kobold can have a maximum of three hit points. No armor, armor class nine, but he's got a spear. Spear is armor class eight. That's more than two classes higher than your stupid dagger. So you in the initiative, you're in melee range, you're going to lunge forward with your dagger, and guess what? The kobold's attack roll is resolved first. And if the kobold does manage to hit, now granted it's unlikely because your armor class is high enough, but let's say that kobold lucks out and rolls a natural 20. Then you just run headlong into the kobold's spear. And you might be dead because if you're a first level fighter, you only have one hit die. And that spear does does one hit die of damage. And if you're if you're not taking max hit points, back in the day you rolled hit points at first level, you could have gone into the dungeon with two or three hit points. That kobold could easily have skewered you, and it would be entirely your fault for wielding a dagger and running headlong into that kobold spear. That is how weapon class works in chainmail, and that's why I like it. Um, you can't really graft that onto onto a traditional D&D combat anymore. But that is why every single weapon can do a d6, and yet you still can't wander around the dungeon wearing full plate and a shield, wielding a dagger. You're going to go last. Even if you rolled highest on initiative, you're going to go last. There are other things. Now, um, this basically, this, this idea that the longer weapon attacks first, on the first round, is is similar to the pole arm or the pole weapon rule that I talked about in melee. It's a little bit clearer because there's basically this entire list of effects that different attacks have when their weapon classes are a certain distance apart. For instance, from the second round, so the longer weapon attacks first on the first round only. From the second round, the first blow is struck by whoever struck the first blow previously. So that would be the, the kobold again in our hi- hypothetical um, hypothetical example. The kobold gets to go first from the second round, assuming everybody's still alive. Notice that this does not anticipate that you re-roll initiative every round. Chainmail at least in the man-to-man combat, the single combat, assumes that you're going to keep that initiative order the way that modern D&D does. So the kobold gets to go first unless the opponent has a weapon which is two classes lower or the opponent is fighting from above. So this time the kobold is at a disadvantage because now that you're already in melee range and the first blows have been struck, now the lighter weapon has the advantage. You're presumably closed in and now... The, the longer your weapon is, the more unwieldy it is. And this is, we saw this reflected in the fact that a dagger only needs a six to hit an, armor, an unarmored man and a, and a pike needs an eight. It's not because the pike is a worse weapon, a worse weapon. One thing we know about Gary Gygax, and anybody who's read Unearthed Arcana knows this, is that he loved pole weapons. He has, you know, he wrote... He wrote a whole section on pole arms and how they're used and what they're for. And 
Before that, he wrote oh, he wrote more than one article in Dragon Magazine about pole arms, and a pike is a pole arm. It's a it's a type of pole weapon. He also wrote in Chainmail um, that the that armored pikemen are about the the best type of uh, of soldier that you could have. And it's an offhand remark, as if he expects you to know this and agree with this. It's not like something that he's like making a point or describing them and then saying, so therefore we can see that armored pikemen are the best possible soldier. He just kind of tosses this off as an offhand thing, like everybody knows armored pikemen are the best soldiers. But he's like, look, they have a high armor class, and their poles can be set against the charge of cavalry, so horses can't get them. They can usually attack anybody at trying to attack them first because their weapons are so long. The only disadvantage they have is that it's hard to change face. It's hard it's hard to face a different direction. Um when you're when you have a whole rank and file of of a uh, of pole of pikemen, basically. So from the second round, the lighter weapon gets to go first. And then there are other uh other uh effects of weapon class any weapon two or more classes higher than the attacker the ability to parry does not exist but for if your weapon is one class higher to three classes lower you can parry the blow by subtracting two from the attacker's rule but then you forfeit your counter rule this is another rule from chainmail chainmail that i mean the 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 single combat system is overly complex and i've never i've never uh I've never tried to graft it entirely onto D&D. But I do like this idea that a certain type of weapon can parry the attacker's rule by basically imposing a negative two on their attack rule and you forfeit your counter, you you forfeit your returning blow. But according to strict chainmail rules, you have to be either one class higher to three classes lower. If you're four to seven classes lower than the attacker this is your weapon class again, then you can either give the first blow, even if it's not your turn, or parry the attacker, attacker's blow by subtracting two from the roll. But if even after opposing that negative two, the attacker still hits, they break your weapon. So this is, this is trying to take into account that heavier weapons, if you try to parry a heavy weapon with a lighter weapon, they might break your weapon. Again, I like this rule a lot because I like rules that can occasionally break weapons and armor requiring you to buy new ones. I just still again I haven't grafted this entirely onto uh, D&D because it does get caught it does get complicated. You have to have this whole list. And then when you're planning an encounter, you have to know exactly what weapon all your bad guys are wielding if they are wielding weapons. If they just have claws, then how does that work? Then you also have to keep track of what your the PCs are wielding and make sure you write notes to yourself about what's going to happen when they go head-to-head, when weapons are going to potentially break and things like that. Lastly, if your weapon is eight or cl- eight or more classes lower than the attacker's, the defender gets the first blow and may parry the second or strike the second. So you can choose whether you parry or strike 
if you don't want the first blow. If you subtract one for the parry and a rule and, and a rule equal to the original kill requirement breaks the weapon. So you can you can potentially get your weapon broke broken just like if you were four to seven classes. Then in parentheses or round brackets, pike spears and or lances of the attacker do get the first blow over lower class weapons if there is a charge. That's what pikes are for. They're for setting against the charge. So again there were rules in melee about setting pole weapons against the charge and the advantages they got. Here the length of the weapon prevents the defender, even with his lighter weapon, the ability to get the first blow. So, there, and then lastly, a man wielding a weapon four classes lower gets two blows during every melee round, and if you have a weapon eight classes or lower, you strike three three times. So the lighter the weapon, the more times you get to attack as well. So these are the long list of ways that weapon class can affect hand or melee combat in chainmail. When I ran D&D using chainmail rules, I took some of those things in into consideration. But I, I couldn't really I couldn't really put them all in because there were too many things to remember and it depended too much on what weapons the players would choose um, and things like that. So I did I did kind of simplify it um, when I did when I did attempt to uh, to run D and D using chainmail combat and I will probably talk about that for my next episode because what I did was I. Uh, I used a lot of random tables to roll up a dungeon intentionally in the style of the original 1974 era dungeon crawl with just a lot of random craziness and stuff and you know weird secret doors and things and and then I said to my daughter, "Hey, do you want to play original Dungeons and Dragons?" And we used chainmail combat, meaning that she rolled 2d6 to hit. And I had to keep track of what type of armor everybody was wearing in order to know the correct to hit, like hit requirements <laughs> for each weapon that everybody was wielding. And I did try to put as many of those weapon class things into account as possible. For instance, I did give my kobold spears because I thought, here's a sneaky way to practice this. They'll get the first blow even if they don't go first. So they get if they go first, they get the first attack. If they don't go first, they still get the first attack. Um, because a sword is armor class or is weapon class four, and a spear is weapon class eight, so that's more than two ahead. So it's more than two higher. So they still get the first blow on the first round. I will talk about that next time, but yeah, that is a uh, is chainmail, which I had to learn as much of as I possibly could in order to attempt to run D and D with um, with uh, the original chainmail rules. Um, I forgot already whether I mentioned this in the melee um, episode, so forgive me if I'm repeating myself, but. Um, a while ago, somebody on G plus on the Swords and Wizardry, um, I think the Swords and Wizardry Light group on G plus had asked if there was a way to run Swords of Wizardry where you only need D sixes. You don't even need the uh, 
um, the the D twenty for to hit rolls. And there were a lot of different suggestions, and I put in the one that you could go look up chainmail and try to and try to map that system onto it using two D six to hit. Um, since then, you know, obviously at that point I hadn't, you know, I hadn't got a uh, got my hands on the melee game with the three D six roll under your ability score. Um, but if anybody out there is wanting to run Swords and Wizardry Light using only a d6, you might consider, instead of using this complex chainmail weapon class type thing, you might consider um, rolling 3d6 under your ability score. That combines melee and uh, like the black hack. You know, so for instance, with melee, you're always rolling under your decks. Um, if I were going to use this with Swords and Wizardry Light, I would I would say you could roll it under the ability that is, you know, behind the attack. So a missile attack, you'd roll it under your decks. A melee attack, you'd roll it under your strength. Um, spell casting, you need that usually is requires saving throws on the part of the target. But I guess they could roll under their intelligence to avoid. You know, you could use basically, instead of using the single saving throw, um, you could use your five ability scores as your saving throws in a similar way to 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons, but roll under them on 3d6. So the DM would just decide what kind of saving throw it is, and then you have to roll under your ability score on 3d6. It's not age, it's not, uh, it's not a million miles away from Maze Rats either where you're not trying to roll under with Maze Rats, but you're rolling 2d6 and adding whatever small bonus you get for uh, for the stat that, that's behind the roll and trying to go 10 or above. Which, speaking of Maze Rats, you could probably adopt that system. Um, just uh, roll 2d6 and try to hit 10 or above, and it's a success. And, you know, if, you, if you've if you got a plus one in the ability score, so again, for a melee attack, strength, if you've got a plus one strength, then it's 2d6 plus one. The way the bell curve works, 10 is still is still pretty, it's, it's not nearly as likely to succeed um, as you might be used to with a standard d20 roll. But then again, you know, neither is 3d6 roll under. Depending on how high, I mean, the, if you have a really high score, then it then it's very likely to succeed. If you don't, then you know it's hardly ever likely to succeed. Which is what I found with melee is that if you don't have a high dex or find a way to buff your dex, you're not going to ever land a blow. Anyways, next time I will uh, talk about the time I ran original Dungeons and Dragons, not Swords and Wizardry, but the three little brown booklets in a randomly generated dungeon um, using chainmail combat, or at least attempting to, in a little adventure that I call the Unplayable Dungeon. And I will also talk about why you should never use chainmail combat when you're playing Dungeons & Dragons. You don't have to, and Gary Gygax himself said don't. Until then, play well and let the dice fall where they may.